0: Hey everyone, this recording went on very long, so this is a two-part episode. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to part one, because otherwise this will make no sense to you. If you have listened to part one, then enjoy the episode. So, uh, let's see, he says, sometimes growth is even what causes declining, oh, even what causes declining resource use, such as when farmers implement better irrigation technologies or when coal plants are replaced with solar farms. (laughs) So neither of those have really happened, so I don't know what he's talking about.
1: Uh, Also, how is that growth? (laughs) Like
0: Yeah, that's uh, a good point.
2: (laughs) What is GDP growth, right? So that's the that's their point, I guess. But like it's uh what's the word? He's just using growth
0: to mean like improvement.
2: In any activity, yeah. He's referring it to he's using GDP to refer to Transactions. But that's the thing, right? So it's, as you're saying, it's like not really even a transaction. I mean, it is conducted probably in money, so it is, it is counted in GDP. But he's acting like GDP indexes like that activity on its own rather than the market transaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, it's just wrong, right? <laughs> I,
0: I like this next one. Uh, he says, the idea that economic growth can't continue is wrongheaded. Eventually, the sun will explode. But in the meantime, growth might continue for a very, very long time. Uh, which, at at our current growth rate, we will need to consume all the energy that hits the earth in like two or three hundred years, and then all the energy that the sun produces in like four thousand years, which on the timeline of human existence is not very long. <laughs>
2: um, it's, uh, what is it, like, that uh, people love to do this, like when they gave Bernie Sanders like three Pinocchios, because he said climate change will destroy the earth. And they said, that's not true because the earth will still (laughs) exist. (laughs) Taking George
0: Carlin bits too seriously.
1: I feel like Noah's not considering the GDP spike that will happen when the sun explodes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to rebuild everything. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So he continues. Um, uh, gross domestic product is only one of many measures of human well-being, which it is not. <laughs> it even says that in the article that he quoted, that he cited right in the first paragraph. Um, and, oh, he wow, he even mentions Volrath, um, the guy who says that slowing growth can be a sign of economic maturity. So, what? I didn't notice this before. So in the first paragraph, he's like, Oh yeah, this is like all just people wanting to rationalize slow growth, and now he's like, yeah, this guy, this really smart guy, says slow growth is good, actually.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, mean, um, I mean, is that is that the spread again? You know, is that is that just throwing all the shit out re- regardless of how you know internally coherent it is? Just to just I to, guess it must be. Know, like maybe he
0: just knows it. That- the people that actually take them seriously have like dog brains and forgot what they read in the first paragraph already. Yeah. I don't know. Um, okay. So he, he goes through the de uh, degrowthers want to penalize the poor argument again. So poor countries need growth um, and growth is concentrated in countries such as Nigeria, which, um, oh, sorry, extreme poverty is concentrated in countries such as Nigeria, with st- which struggles with slow growth. I would love to hear him explain why uh, Nigeria's growth is slow.
2: Oh, wait. Uh, doesn't Nigeria have – I thought Nigeria had very fast growth.
0: Maybe his statistics are out of date. Let's see. Is this according to GDP?
2: Um, well, because uh, – let's see. Well, GDP growth everywhere in the world is slowing down, um, but it's always going to be higher in the poorer countries than the richer countries. Oh, no, it's only 2% now. That's interesting in nigeria
0: r.i.p. uh nigeria
2: but let's see ethiopia and ghana for comparison are six six to seven percent
0: um so he says many of those who live in those countries i guess poor countries uh still have living standards that would be seen as unconscionably low in developed countries uh for example they don't have iphones which is bad um he says they may have enough to eat, but they often lack running water, electricity, quality housing, basic healthcare, efficient transportation, and many other things that people in the developed world take for granted. I—I I mean, I already mentioned the transportation thing, but like, uh, it seems like they would characterize poverty as only having been overcome in even in rich countries starting in like 1910, uh, because before that we didn't have electricity or. Efficient transportation.
2: I mean, I mean, well, in some sense, that might actually like be true, right? So, like, that's the thing. I mean, going back to the hunter gatherers point from the very beginning, right? It's like uh, we have finally surpassed, on average, like the like living standards of like uh, nomadic foragers and stuff. Their median and modal standards. I mean, we could. There's obviously a lot of variability in them, so we. Can, it's not whatever, but and you know, it's like, you know, and all it took about, was
0: you know. Uh, a bunch of medicine that everyone warned could cause a global pandemic eventually, <laughs> okay, so starting here, uh young Neocon had some network issues, and I want what he said to be included in the recording. Um, so I'm going to record it as a voiceover, uh, which is kind of weird, but uh whatever. so we reconstructed what he said. he said, uh for uh, hundred fifty thousand years, we had nomadism. And then for 45,000 years, we had on and off settlement. We have evidence that goes back 50,000 years, but that doesn't mean it's when it started. And then 5,000 years ago, we had states and permanent agriculture. He commented to me, people would settle internally, develop, etc., on and off, slowly but surely, until about 5,000 years ago, abandoning agriculture and settlement when it no longer suited them uh, prior to then. But when it uh, became permanent... Living standards just collapsed, and there was uh, that was a universal thing, and that required uh, the state and forced settlement. But when it became permanent, living standards just collapsed, and that was a universal thing. And since then, we've been slowly up and down uh, with heights like the Roman Empire or whatever. And then finally, 120 years ago or something, probably around 1880 or so for the imperial powers, and then 1910 or 1920 for the rest of Europe. And then 1950 for the rest of the world, uh, we finally surpassed the level of uh, living standards that we had in like during nomadism and uh, temporary agriculture. Okay, back to him.
2: Like, finally, we passed that previous level, and so like, yes, now we're at a higher uh, level if you measure it by consumption and uh, and uh, life expectancy and stuff. But uh, if you like weight it against like free time or quality or ecological impact or, you know, everything, uh, Height, it's just bone like, lesions,
0: etc. Uh,
1: <laughs> like and, a- and even life expectancy yeah. is, is <laughs> questionable, right? Like even that's, that's kind of like just, just because of, uh, infant mortality,
2: infant mortality. Yeah. uh, uh, well, there was, uh, I read some really actually interesting article on the demographic transition where for most of history, so-called rises in living standards were just falls in infant mortality and then finally after world like world war 2 or 1960 1970 i think maybe it was really recent finally the gains started to come a little bit at the uh, at the from older people living longer so uh, mm. so life expectancy at 5 and life expectancy at 18 did rise over the last like 50 years but that's like the first like that's that's like the first time that happened so like if so like out of so like that's 50 years out of you know whatever and like all the gains resulted in it for, like, infant mortality, like, many of those are just, in theory, like, posi- like you do- they don't depend on industrial capitalism to exist. You don't need industrial capitalism to yeah. have prophylaxis or, or contraceptives <laughs> or hand-washing. Soap. Like, Soap. Delivering babies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's just, like, it's just funny. I don't know. It's whatever. But, um, and so I think probably, right, like, maybe about 100, years ago, we did finally sort of start to surpass that, whatever, in some places. Not everywhere, by the way, uh, and uh, like and it's just like okay, yeah, we only have to go through you know five thousand years of inequality, slavery, genocide, ecological destruction, um, destruction of everything, uh, patriarchy, uh, social division of labor, capitalism, the state, militarism, uh, and we and now and and to have created like several anthropogenic uh, mass casualty threats, like existential threats like nuclear apocalypse and climate change and topsoil depletion and over centralization and conventional war even and mass pandemics and zoonosis and also we only have to go we only have to do that for five thousand years to per- surpass our uh, previous uh, living standards for 50 years <laughs> it's just it, that's that but you know again earlier i think you know um like people just i don't think they can even admit this fact right i don't know
1: um, well, I, I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, that's why people like Steven Pinker always just kind of omit things like climate change in their, their you know, rosy, optimistic pictures of everything's as good as it's ever been. They just have to ignore the things that are you know, hurtling us toward complete, permanent collapse.
2: And, well, And again, here's the tinfoil path thing, too, because each part of that broader network that comprises the fourth IR people and what I've noticed is that they try to avoid all these, like, um, catastrophes and stuff, the climate change, nuclear apocalypse. But there is, like, one or two classes of mass casualty events they do care about. And there are things like um, sentient AI taking over the world and killing oh, us, yeah. uh, the great <laughs> the great glue, uh, automation, mm-hmm. something, something, uh, bioengineered warfare, and, like, asteroids, and... <laughs> They love space. That's what the, yeah. they're sci-fi nerds.
0: They don't read books. They just watch movies.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, so he goes, uh, Noah Smith goes through the same argument that uh, what's his face went. Eric Idle went through at the end. Uh, he says developed economies provide a crucial source of demand for goods in nations such as Bangladesh, Vietnam and Ethiopia. I think he just like paraphrased that other article. I think that's all I did here. Yeah, yeah. Um, helping these nations boost productivity and make the transition to rich world status. Uh, that That's going to happen one day, isn't it? There, one day they'll sell enough goods to rich countries and then they'll finally become rich.
1: Um. They'll get to be the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want that?
0: And, and I, I said, man, if only there was some way that places rich in natural resources, labor and culture didn't have to produce goods for a global class of wealthy people in order to thrive. Oh, well.
2: <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, that, that whole thing, I mean, the whole fact that these places produce goods for export, it's like glossed like, And when they could just produce for use, is totally glossed over.
0: Right. Um, And then he says, uh, growth in advanced countries also creates the technologies." solar power batteries and environmentally friendly chemicals that let developing nations do more with less. And if it's so important for them to be able to do that, uh, how about we just give it to them? Oh no, that would be bad. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's about the end of the article. Uh, We're at an hour 45. Do we want to talk about that blog post or should we just uh, wrap it up now?
2: Well, I mean, I think, well, I think it's like a lot of this stuff will get, whatever, but, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually stunning how short this article is, right? I mean, because it, like, doesn't make an argument. Right. Like, you get yeah. to the end, and there's no – like, the New Yorker article at least, like, subtly made an argument. You get to the end of this, that's it, right? There's no it – It's make six pages,
0: point. and, uh, like, two, three of the pages are just those terrible graphs.
2: <laughs> I think, yeah. like – I don't know. I mean, I, like – like to talk about the blog post and maybe like, you know, some sort of, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, you have time Samuel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I read this one. I'll just pull it up, but yeah, let's hop in.
2: Well, yeah, that, and like, I think, cause I think we should probably like at least end on certain sort of like general, cause there are unifying themes here between all of these assholes. So
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: they're writing maybe. the same article three times. It seems just skimming the, the blog post um so you sound the most familiar with it young neocon do you want to talk about i like that it starts with uh talking about twitter discussions <laughs> that's how you know it's gonna be good twitter i'm not even kidding I, I really think that's gonna be good
2: <laughs> i want let's see okay uh here we go i first of all yeah wait i want to know who this guy is let's see oh it's branko milanovic that's so sad who, who's Mil- that he's an economist who works on like global inequality. Um, yes, I think that book, that's just called global inequality. Uh, and I like him kind of, I mean, for a neo, like a more neoclassical economist, he's fine. Like, uh, he, 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 he he, he tries, he, he takes like, you know, takes the Piketty pieces seriously, and all these other, but he integrates it into a broader model. Uh, it's a, it's interesting. It's his book on global inequality is actually pretty cool, but, uh, for neoclassical work anyway. But, uh, uh, this is just so sad. <laughs> this, this, po- this, this blog post article is just, I mean, uh, yeah. Like, because, it, oh, okay, okay, see, this is infuriating, right? Now that I know, who, I didn't even put that together before. In the Global Inequality book, he literally has an entire freaking section on why, like, talking about GDP's flaws for measuring real uh, things about the world. Jeez. and inequality he has like a whole like, <laughs> chapter on it, like you know, a whole inset or something insert on it it's like hilarious yeah and here he says
0: let us suppose for the sake of argument that we interpret degrowth as the decision to fix global gdp at its current level
1: i think just the word degrowth triggers people i think that's all it is that yeah. it's just they see the word and they project all of these ridiculous things onto it without knowing anything about it
0: I bet this guy has also said like why do they call it defunding the police if they don't want to defund the police? <laughs> Guarantee. Yeah. Like it's it's the same mentality. It's just looking looking at the term and then being like, "Hmm, if if I believed this term as an ideology, what would it be for me?" And then that's what they think it actually is.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, So yeah, so his whole thing, instead of all these people, they say, let us suppose, this is basically what they say, let us suppose degrowth means X, and it doesn't mean that thing. Um, uh, So he goes through this entire scenario, just to summarize it quickly, he goes through this entire scenario where it's like, what happens is, uh, so uh, we either fix our world output, um, and then uh, either we like, uh, we allow the rest of the world to get, if we let 90% of the people increase their incomes to that level, right, so we let... Uh, everybody increased their uh, GDP, and then America and everywhere else has to reduce their income substantially. Through, uh, uh, it would not take it would not happen through the immiseration of the West, uh, through the transfers of the poor. We just allowed them to earn more. The immiseration of the West would take place through gradual and sustained reduc- reduction in income until everybody who's rich loses sufficiently so that they drop to the global mean. On average, we have seen this two thirds, but the very rich would have to lose more. The global des- top display would have to lose 80%. The global top ventile would have to lose 84%. Factories, trains, airports, schools would work one third of their time. Electricity, heating, and hot water would be available for eight hour days. Cars may be driven for one day out of three. We would only work 13 hours a week to make Keynes happy to have guessed correctly in economic possibilities in his grandchildren, etc. all in order to produce only about a third of the goods that the West is producing now. Uh, this, pr- this would put the global Gini coefficient to zero. Uh, we would have to, we would move therefore from a higher level of inequality than in South Africa to one of complete equality. Uh, on top of this world population is and then we'll new have, new have a handicapper by... in chief, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is. It is. World population is positive increased, increased, increased by several billion, uh, we change consumption patterns, uh, that I mean, it's just like, uh, this won't find political support. So we won't do it. If we may want to th- to think more seriously about how to reduce emissions, not to engage in illusions of degrowth in a very and unequal world, to think about how the most car- emissions, intensive goods and services could be taxed in order to reduce their consumption. Uh, so obviously you need to think about how new technologies can be hardest to make the world more environmental friendly, but degrowing is not the way to go. So first of all, wait, it's weird. Okay, first of all, it's very funny to me weird that they why, they all like mentioned canes. Uh, they all mention like uh, the limits to growth they all like to quote like economists from the 70s to like make fun of them. They all like who said some like wild thing, you know, from the 70s, and they all love to just stipulate that degrowth means something that it does not. And not a single one of them like actually talks about any of these things sub- substantively. It's just like, like, there's so many commonalities between their argumented argumentation tactics. Like, uh, like they love to mention Keynes and they love to mention the Limits to Growth uh, p- pro, uh, report. And what's funny about both of those things is that their quantitative predictions of those reports actually did turn out true. It's not like, that's what, that's like the funny thing. Right. Uh, and what's more like, uh, they not a single one of them engaged. Like they all say degrowth, uh, they just they stipulate the degrowth means X, Y, Z. But like, as you say, they don't, they don't quote anybody. They don't, whatever. They just straw man, but the straw man has nothing to do with what they're talking about. It's just like bizarre. Um, like, well, I mean, there's so many things we could say, right, like, about how, like, okay, it's like for, like, like, like the Milanovic thing, right? Like, um, what, he, you know, he doesn't talk about, like, you know, what if we just had open, like, even within a capitalist economy, even if we just had open borders, right? Right. Like, there would be global equalization of, like, uh, resources and wages and income between countries, which could co-occur with some sort of, like, Uh, throughput reduction program and that's possible in theory even in uh, capitalism although it wouldn't actually happen but um, I don't know it's just like yeah anyway I I find this stuff curiously funny and how consistent and consistently wrong it is. Do you think are are they just all reading each other and and that's why they're getting the same talking points? Or where where do you think that's coming from? Some like I think that's part of it too but I've noticed that people on like Twitter also makes similar arguments. The thing about like mentioning like limits to growth, particularly and like things that economists said in the '70s, they love to quote like Paul Ehrlich or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is funny because I've been seeing that for like 20 years. I've seen I've been seeing yeah. that one as long as uh, like Stephen Pinker, for example, loves to mention that stuff. Uh, yeah. So I think part of that is just citation and them reading each other. Uh, and I think part of it is that it's like the only arguments available to them. So they just either they have to go through them. Mm-hmm.
0: But my own. Here's person- another thing about li- limits to growth. Uh, there's a Wikipedia summary.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there's a criticism uh, section on there. I think that's probably where they're getting a lot of their arguments. You guys keep talking and I'll I'll read the criticism section and see if that's where well where this stuff so is coming from.
2: <laughs> my, my new cynical to- take is that. When these people talk about degrowth or poli- prison abolition or decolonization or anything like that, my cynical take is not that like, people uh, like, are basing it off of like misinformation and um, falsity and stuff, although they definitely are full of misrepresentation and falsity. Mm-hmm. I think that part of it is that these people actually on a sort of, I don't know, I guess I hate to say like unconscious level, actually do understand what its arguments are. And then that's even more scary to them than their straw man. So Mm -hmm. like the thing where like we get rid of GDP and we degrowth throughput and we have a more equitable distribution of resources based on justice and we don't destroy the planet. and Not everything is based on production and accumulation and state power and capitalism. I think that is scary to a lot of people. I think they they don't want that. And I think like, like, because I noticed that I chose the three things, those ones I chose specifically like degrowth uh, decolonization, and prison abolition, because for those three, the critiques I see from, whether in written media, on social media by pundits, but even sometimes in academia, uh, among people, whatever, they're all incredibly, like, stereotyped and like uh, consistent. They are repetitive. Uh, they make very similar points, even if they're not in dialogue with each other, and um, they have this, like, not only do they, they have misrepresentations that are, like, they, they have misunderstandings or at least superficially, of these ideologies, but they're consistent in what those are, as in, like, um, they all managed to get it exactly wrong, but exactly wrong in the same way. Yeah. And so that, to me, starts to make me think, like, more cynically, because I just start to be, like realize, like, like uh, I don't know, like the people who, like, I, I don't know. I, I have become, I've become very much, like, uh, suspicious of, like a lot of leftists recently who it seems like much of what they believe is just totally based around sort of like a, a very sort of baseline level of self-interest. That's not like, I don't care about people caring about self-interest, but it's like this like almost obfuscated self-interest. They mm-hmm. won't even admit to themselves. So it's like for degrowth and decolonization all these other things, prison abolition, I think like, I think, okay, for, I think we have to separate the fact that there's like the pundit ideological class group people who are just going to like, that's their job to line, obviously. Yeah. But then for the average person who has like, who is like, I don't know, we it's like a Marxist or something for them to recapitulate these same misunderstandings to me is baffling. Unless we assume that like they aren't really, it's like, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. That's my own cynical take. Yeah. So I, I, I and, looked
0: at the, uh, the two Wikipedia articles, uh, the limits to growth one and the degrowth one. And, uh, none of those criticisms are in there. So, they're not even reading Wikipedia about this shit. I don't know what they're reading.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think part part of it is that the the take monger economy is is you know very competitive, and you kind of have to. Part of it is is finding the most efficient way to, you know, uh, to to get your column out and and build your your clout as a as a you know educated wonk. And I think of doing that is is sharing punching bags you know it's 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 sort of taking what you can from the other people in that sort of economy and uh just pumping out the content as quick as you can uh without really thinking deeply about it or uh you know confronting it in a way that's that's uh faithful to the actual opposition um
2: but on a secondary level though we have to like i what why do you think like i wonder like like but the pundits, you know, they're as you're saying this, whatever. But what I, what, why do you think it is that like people actually like believe that? <laughs> is, what, what, yeah. what do you think uh, it is?
1: I mean, I I couldn't speak to like self-avowed leftists, you know, parodying that. Um, I I think people who, uh, you know, the, the the whole sort of role of the of the uh, Iglesias or, or Noah Smith wonk is to to be the quotable expert you know is to be this this sort of lay person's expert that that people can go to and say i'm also thinking about this in a in a profound way because i'm quoting this person who's thinking about it in a profound way um it's a it's a short a shorthand of a shorthand sort of and um i think that to me that would explain you, you know somebody who's not a committed leftist parodying these things but yeah i don't know i mean uh there is a whole section of the left that's that's really uh infatuated with this with with growthism that i i don't know where that's that's coming from um i think
0: uh, a good part of it is just people want they want the future that they have been promised in like sci-fi and stuff like they, they want to go to space they want trains they want like bullet trains they want guns, which I want yeah. guns too. But you know, not bullet. that bad.
2: <laughs> bullet, 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 uh, bullet uh, trains to space.
0: Right. Yeah, they want a space um, elevator, all that stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, Sam, what's your in academia? What's your experience like? What's it like for you in geography as like a discipline? Because I always, from the outside, geography looks very like politicized and pretty like ecologically and left wing concerned in general. I think. You
1: know, um speaking more broadly, I think that's true. Um I think Oxford's maybe a, not the the most radical uh place for for the uh for you know critical geography. Um I think <laughs> I, I've been kind of disconnected from the department for a while. Um I've been living up in, in Edinburgh and um so I haven't I haven't been as engaged in some of the uh, some of the stuff that's happening in, in the department right now, um, I think, compared with with other parts of the university, it's it's probably uh, more, um, sort of on the radical end of the spectrum, and and more uh, interested in in uh, you know e- ecological, um, you know, reasonable ecological policy. I, I think Kate Raworth is there at, at ECI at the environmental change Institute. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a space for donut economics, uh, there, but I, I think the, m- my impression of it has been that, that it is a pretty, um, you know, there's, there's a range, uh, of what's being discussed. And a lot of the, uh, like particularly the energy transition side of things that, that I'm more plugged into, um I, I think degrowth is not not a big uh topic there. And um I don't know, I, I wouldn't say the geography department is particularly radical. I think it's also divided by the physical and social uh mm-hmm. sides and I think the physical geography is 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 a lot more uh, you know, apolitical and and positivist and and you know, going out and and measuring the the dynamics of, of dunes and things and or um, David? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the social side, I think. Um,
2: so uh, he kind of portrays himself as the like uh, bridge or whatever.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and he's I don't know what the I, is he at uh, UC David UCLA yeah, I think U- is UCLA is where he geography. is. Yeah, and I I think I don't know the U.S. geography might be a little different from the U.K. geography, and and I couldn't speak as much to the uh, to what's happening in the states. I know it's it's not at many universities in the uh in the americas uh it's it's i think more european um more more common in european universities uh so it, it might just be a, a really different kind of uh discipline in the states than it is in the in the uk um i yeah, i don't know I think I here,
0: think it's at least at my university yeah. geography was like gis so it was like very technical
1: yeah exactly yeah and um I, I uh, when I was at uh, Yale School of Environment, it was all you know. The only time anybody said geography, it was about GIS stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's much less of a sort of interdisciplinary social science in the states than it is in 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 the UK. And um, I think there's even I mean, it is it's Oxford, so it's it's you know it's a pretty conservative university. I think um, given that it's it's a pretty good department in it and it it does have a pretty uh, sort of broad range of, of um, topics that it's looking at. And, and uh, I think it's pretty open in what it's encouraging students to, to explore. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's one of the better departments in the, in the university.
2: Yeah. yeah, Just from the outside looking in uh, I was always like envious of uh, geography as a discipline it seemed because, you know, it seems full of like radicals and, uh, interdisciplinary work and so uh, Not that sociology doesn't have that kind of thing, too. I just, yeah, I always uh, appreciated geography. Uh,
0: Gramsci was a geographer, right? Uh, uh I, did Gramsci, I, don't know if that had, I don't know?
2: I think you're thinking of Elise Reclus. Oh, maybe. Um, I thought
0: there was an Italian anarchist that was a geographer.
2: I, I, he, he's a, he's a he's French uh, anarchist. He, uh, uh Reclus, a uh, yeah, French anarchist, and right. he's friends with Kropotkin. Um. I don't know. Yeah,
0: that is the first thing that comes up.
2: Um, what is it like? Uh, just like tying this all together. I mean, like I don't know what's like. Like what's like? I've tried. I, I mean, I don't. Maybe even for just like the British universities in general, or uh, maybe for just for uh geography. But it's just like in my experience, like uh, people who are a- academics are like snooty and annoying, but they're a little bit better on ecological issues in general. So I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I guess like uh, sort of just wondering like uh. Like, what I don't know. What am I think? I'm sort of kind of at, trying to like ask you like about like your, your, wor- the work you do and how it connects to like this degrowth stuff. And like, I'm kind of interested in how you became this like uh, started doing all this journalism work. And I I know this sounds off topic, but I, in my mind, I'm because I wanted like. Uh,
0: yeah, like is I there mind. a connection to what you're studying in school, or is it kind of separate?
2: Yeah, I think there's
1: definitely a connection. Um, I, I I mean, it's kind of like i i came to the sort of academic path from a, a more activist uh background and um have been you know have kind of maintained that that allegiance you know and and this i see this as a kind of uh corollary of that and um and i think that's that's been I think that's fairly welcome in this department. I, I think there's been a lot of like I, I get emails a lot from people trying to like plug into uh, like you know Extinction Rebellion is the kind of main main uh, conduit here that you can you can kind of plug into to, to do the activist side of things. Um, there's there's not really a UK DSA or anything uh, that's that's really active. Um,
2: what about the Green Party? Are they not good?
1: I, I think there's there's um, I, I've seen a lot of ambivalence about the Green Party. It's 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 got a lot of the the kind of liberal, you know, they'll they'll uh, they'll sort of partner up with with uh, Lib Dems and, and Tories when it suits them. And uh, I think there's been a, a a little bit of a divide with Labor um, because of that. And they were pretty critical of Labor even during the even during Corbyn's uh, sort of you know, recent, recent uh, election. And I think uh, electoral politics, I think, is just very different. And the, the way to, to really plug into the kind of direct action stuff is, is Extinction Rebellion here right now. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of stuff in this department um, trying to do that really actively. Uh, Sorry?
2: Has, has you Got to XR at all?
1: That's a good question. I haven't seen a lot about it. No, um, that, but yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, they, they like to do the whole post-politics thing. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything that would be particularly, uh, averse to, to, to a kind of degrowth agenda in XR, but, um, I, and I've only had a, a few little conversations with, uh, some of the people who have helped organize it, but um, there's, there's not, as far as I know, there's not a, a, a major kind of discussion around, around degrowth in in XR um, at the moment.
2: So what do you think like then uh, sort of, I guess sort of I'd conclude it. Maybe I don't know who you noticed that it was like, uh, I wonder like, I don't know what are your, cause I'm, pretty much become a very pessimistic person but uh like I wonder I sort of wonder like how besides you know doing podcasts and writing these articles it's like how do we counter these guys basically how do we get this deep paradigm of degrowth uh more broadly understood I mean both in in, in environmentalist circles but also just in general and like what do you like what because I don't know I mean there's the material side and the intellectual side of these are kind of somewhat different because the material side of ecological activism is always pretty straightforward right? Like the targets and stuff. But it, mm. I think there is something important to like like uh like, because this like bullshit, like on degrowth, on ecological issues in general, I mean, it's there's so much as we see it, this, these people just pump out one thing after another, and I see it recapitulated, repeated, and like I always just like wonder like what is the best way to like I mean, cause if my cynical hypothesis is true that these people do really kind of just get it and then are being, you know, dishonest about their self-interest, then there is really no we, we, there's no point in even trying to convince people kind of on it because they don't really care about ecological issues but if it's a less cynical thing if it's just people being you know whatever like there is a hope to convince people or like to spread ecological concern i don't know
1: yeah it's 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 tough i mean degrowth is is in some ways i think one of the one of the biggest uh one of the hardest things to sell because it's it's one of the most sort of direct rebuttals to the the you neoliberal know, consensus and you you kind of have to completely uh abandon those tenets to to embrace it and if you're you know if you're being paid by bloomberg you're not gonna you're not gonna do that um and i've i've kind of just been focused on the on the you know discourse side of it uh lately and and how can we talk about this in a way that's that's going to be you know, trying to get broader mainstream acceptance of these ideas. So, you know, speaking to the activism side of it, I, I really don't know. And, um, you know, how how do you turn degrowth ideas into a, a on the ground movement? As is, is a is a really huge and important question, and I, I don't have a have a good grasp of that. Um, Not to make know, it even we, more grim, against. but I I yeah. think it
0: even goes back further than the neoliberal consensus to like the early some of the earliest states um i i'm still fucking oh, yeah, reading this definitely. book because i'm such a slow reader but uh, i've been reading myth of the machine by lewis mumford and he talks about uh how basically states are you know these massive machines made of human beings and one of the things about them is that they're sort of self-justifying so that like the, the things they produce like the pyramids and all that kind of thing um sort of are th- like their own rationalization of of the efficacy of that structure and so like we're basically fighting against the same thing that we've been fighting for eight thousand ten thousand years yeah. of like this sort of self-justifying thing that not only uh, is it, you know its own source of propaganda, but also uh, perfectly willing to use organized violence to maintain itself as well. Well, it has to totally. <laughs> and well, one, I, one of the so things he I'm, does talk about is how certain religions and certain um, like small affinity groups. He he singles out Judaism as like um, a liberatory religion, and represent. I almost wonder if like religion is one way to uh, to kind of spread degrowth because it is one of those things where i i I think a case could be made like a religious case could be made for uh degrowth but i'm too atheist to do it so i don't know
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that's 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 really interesting i'm i've i've just started i don't know if i should talk about this too much um i've just i'm starting to write a book that i hopefully going to announce soon that's uh talking about how the idea of progress has been used to kind of uh justify the sort of uh you know expansionist and extractivist economies Mm -hmm. that have existed for you know five thousand years or whatever um and and um i i I think that's that's really true and and it's you know this is a a kind of economy that's existed since uh you know the formation of of empires uh Mm -hmm. of of these complex bureaucratic uh states and um i think i think religion has been used in both ways in both both ways i think it's been used as a as a as a myth that has justified these sort of expansionist and extractivist states right um and but it's also been used in a way I, i think animist religions have been used in a way to to sort of maintain a a a mutualistic relationship between human and natural systems and um you know, I think there is definitely a, a role for belief systems that are, you know, metaphysical or, or mythological that uh, can mediate kind of, you know, a, a degrowth scenario or or uh, you know, a sustainable society, um, if they're not co-opted. And that's that's one of the central sort of ideas of this this book that I'm working on is is that uh, ideas of progress can be you know can start as these very optimistic and positive uh messages for improving society but are are very often co-opted by uh you know people at the top of the power structure to to maintain the kind of hierarchical and and extractivist kind of uh kind of societies that have dominated for the last you know 4 or 5000 years
0: um, Yeah people like examples and the only examples that we have in our own memories of things getting better for people involve stuff like that you know extractivist yeah. expansion etc yeah exactly do you have anything else neocon
2: because i say like with ideology of progress and growthism i mean they're hegemonic across the board they're hegemonic within the state socialist societies they were hegemonic in other things i mean the modern version of growthism which is specifically tied to capitalist metrics and to gp and to Uh, market transactions and neoliberalism. I mean, that's a specific ideology that we have to counter on its own. But that ideology, this specific metrical capitalist one is itself embodied, embedded in, embodied in this broader, these broader ideologies of growthism and progress, which are even more, yeah, it's like they're more universal. They exist across things. And that's like, you know, talking about the co-option, which I think is interesting because a lot of what I think leftists and militants and stuff one of the main like a common thing they like to do and i understand their impulse for this uh is to is to kind of do their own version of that which to say like to assert like the ideology against the dominant rulership so like for progress today, yeah that's like a great example because like that's you know the it's like like they say no we are the force of progress not you and they assert it against the state and this sort of hope that it's emancipatory and i definitely think there's like a hope uh, like a Usefulness to that, but for for growth or all these other things, like my I would contend that in a lot of ways, like like well, growth especially, but like uh, an extraction and this sort of these ideas, like and ideology and structures, like they're intrinsically like there's there it's like you can't even assert them against the state because you're and capital because you're just doing the state and capital's work for them. Yeah, uh, that's always been my like my thing. So growth is like so deeply rooted. Growth is a bit so deeply rooted that it's like like this makes very difficult. But at the point, though, you said about religion, I thought that was interesting. The way I, the direction I thought uh, you, like you were going with and stuff was that, like, because uh, with, like, uh, religion, there's a focus on, like, uh, community and sharing and mutuality and, like, a de-emphasis, de-emphasis on uh, production and consumption, unless you're, mm, you know, too. A really, unless mm-hmm. you're an evangelical Protestant. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. No offense if anyone here is but uh, no. uh, just that uh, but uh so i thought that was like because that's true like uh there is something i mean whatever you know uh because the uh, it's fun. i mean i like the i mean leftists love to be anti-clerical or whatever but you know like pope francis or whatever i think he's like had some marginally positive impact on people's conceptions of uh like the environment and so i So yeah. just i was thinking in that direction too like yeah, but totally. like but like yeah i don't know it's like i have i had what I, what I find for people is that, like, the people who I can, like, challenge, like, I can help, like, I can push them past, like, growthism. Because, I mean, I used to believe in it too, almost certainly even as I thought I opposed it. And I used to recapitulate these misunderstandings of degrowth as well. In fact, I saw so many, like, part of what, I saw so much bad faith, like, reactive discussion and, like, strawmanning of it, it. Ironically, is what pushed me into researching <laughs> it more and then coming to understand it. It's pretty funny because I just yeah. strawman it so much and stuff but like what i have with growth growthism and and so on is that like the people who i can like sort of push against it are already like kind of already there it's like like when i talk to a random person at like the bar like i don't feel like they don't need to like tell them i don't i, I don't need to like tell them that like capitalism and the state sucks and that like production for no reason is useless but like for some reason for whatever reason it's like among like uh like uh, uh, others it's like harder it's like it's like almost harder to push back on these misconceptions among like those who superficially should be sympathetic but then like aren't do you know what i'm saying so it's like mm-hmm. that's been my experience it's just like uh,
0: yeah one thing i forgot to say earlier when we were talking about um leisure time versus consumption um one thing that i thought of and, and by the way uh the person that i'm about to mention was also a geographer i was looking up geographers that's why i remembered this but i remember in uh the conquest of bread kropotkin talks about how we should focus our efforts on like eliminating work essentially and in contrast in the ussr their big uh reason that people should join the soviet union is because everyone would get a job so they're like completely opposite Tendencies among, you know, so-called communists.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's that's one of the the debates that I want to be highlighting in this book is in the you know middle 19th century and, and late 19th century you have all these sort of competing narratives of of what progress has meant so far and what it should be into the future and uh, I think you know one of the interesting sort of uh, trifectas is like the. Uh, Herbert Spencer, Marx, and Kropotkin—I uh, think—having these very different attitudes about, um, you know, about what, 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 how society should should be defining and and uh, and, you know, sort of acting out these ideas of progress. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just glad you brought that up because I think there is a part of what I want to be doing is saying, like, you know this particular argument is better than these other ones and and even though this particular argument in this case i think kropotkins didn't win out in the way that that marx and spencer uh which is a, a department store here in the uk by the way uh <laughs> mark mark Marks and spencer kind of kind of won that debate you know you had the the Marxian ideas of progress taking root in in russia and china and you had the the sort of spencerian ideas of progress uh in the anglophone world um uh, building these two different superpowers. Um, I think pod kind of gets lost in that in that whole discussion and and so part of this I want to be emphasizing these there are these debates happening within these these uh, these sort of different periods that that uh, you know have a lot to tell us about um, how to move forward right
2: now. Uh, it's funny just because uh, I'm also working on an intellectual history project that traces back to the European left. The debates that started in the 19th century and tracing them to the modern day, which is just funny. i you nice. doing, doing a deep dive on it, which involves uh, uh, actually every single persona we just mentioned. Um, that's great. <laughs> that's in different ways. Uh, yeah. But uh, I was going to say though, it's just a side point. Like, because uh, have you ever read the, Have you read the counter the book uh, uh, Marxist eco-socialism? I know. Uh, so the author he makes a pretty convincing case that like uh the Marx of his like the middle and early periods was this like Promethean uh the the te- like teleology, sort of like technology progress, conquest of nature, uh and like uh almost like Whiggish history and so on. But then when Marx began a serious engagement with um, the natural sciences, and so by, like at the end of his life, mm-hmm. uh he was he had basically, you know, his writings on indigenous people on stateless peoples and on ecology and science by the end of his life and technology or the end of his life. I mean, it was just like, he sounded like a, like a, like an anprim you know, he sounded like <laughs> almost anti civ but and then like interesting, but like angles, for example, though, never dropped the evolutionism and the progress ideology and the theology. And he, you know, he, in the same way that Nietzsche's sister got to like govern his publication and turned him into like a, a fascist anti-Semite, which, Nietzsche hated both of those things. Like Engels, I think you know because he controlled Marx's legacy, and he was the direct interface between like Marx and these uh, parties and policies and stuff. Like, like uh, that sort of Promethean Marxism, that marx Londonism and stuff, and, and whatever that we see it's just like uh, that's kind of I think where a lot of that ascended. And then speaking to like Kropotkin losing out and stuff is, and I I was doing a thread on this. I did a thread on this, which would, which is that like. Anarchists for understandable reasons like don't like to institutionalize themselves. Like they don't yeah. like, so mm-hmm. so anarchists will like invent entire disciplines actually quite quite frequently and then like but then like they don't establ they're not establish. they are not going to like establish a department or any ideology after themselves. Marxians yeah. and uh, liberals and spitarians and fascists and whatever, they have no such compunctions. They don't like care. So they, they and also they tie themselves to institutional power, which means sure. that they like and parties and organizations. So, like, we anarchists, you know, people who have these more critical views, it's like we're always on kind of like a losing battle in some ways. I mean, I doesn't, I still like, because like we not only have to like, like, have these ideas, try to spread them, we also have to contend with like institutional power from all different sides and even counter institutional power that against which these ideas uh, embodied are like threatening even in m- multiple ways, a direct challenge. And that's like for me, I've always encountered the problem with. Anarchism and and uh, and liberatory ideologies, anti-authoritarian Marxism, ecology, uh, critiques of you know extractivism, progress, growthism uh, is like we're we're always on this sort of like um like on the back like we're always like on the, in a defensive posture I think because like uh, it's like we have it's like we <laughs> Like yeah, I mean yeah, we don't have like institutions we can point or to organizations for understandable reasons again. Like, and uh, and if you're, I mean, if we're not conducive to institutionalized power or even counter institutionalized power, it like means that like it's much harder for us to be taken up, and like we have to like we have the unfortunate uh uh obligation or necessity of having to actually try to like convince people of our ideas, (laughs) (laughs) and and like and, and like. Uh, because a thing I hear about anarchists and ecology and all these other people a lot—it's from a lot of people. You know, they're more maybe balanced or whatever. So they'll be like, "Oh yeah, of course. Like their ideas sound great, and of course they're probably right, and they're really smart, and these things sound great or whatever." But like, you know, that they, they have some sort of caveat. They say like, "Oh well, but this, 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 and this, or this, 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 and this." And I I've noticed that like, uh, like a lot like people say, "Oh yeah, like." It's like basically have like big dicks
0: and small vaginas, but you know
2: Wh- uh, what? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I would say that, I would say cut that joke out, but I'm the uh, like I was like I like mean like, both
0: on one person.
2: <laughs> oh, I mean yeah, but anyway, uh, anarchists like uh, like I think there's this idea of anarchists being too smart for their own good amongst among the more charitable people. Smart for their own good and too like noble for their own good. I mean, that's like the kind of like liberal critique of anarchism. Uh, The leftist and Marxist critique of anarchism is just like uh, uh, amounts to a petty ongoing fight in both directions for like 200 years. And then, and then like the right wing critique of anarchism is just a gun, so it's just like you know, but I don't. I don't, I don't know, that's just sort of what I've like encountered is there's like with ecology and anarchism and all these other ideas, it's like, and even degrowth, it's like there's this sense, there's this perception that it's almost too smart and too noble for its own good, and that means that it'll always lose, basically. I, I, I hear that a lot from like, from the more charitable like critics of these things, like not just the pure ideological ones, from people who like have left-wing or I don't know, a scholarly background or something or whatever, some mix of it, or who have engaged with the material... That's like more usually the critique I here. I don't know. I don't know. Have you have you ever encountered that? I don't know. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I, I can definitely understand that. Um, but it, it's it's like I don't know where to go from there. You know, it, it's such a defeatist kind of attitude. Like, oh, you have good ideas, and good ideas never win. So let's not have good ideas. It's just yeah. That's
0: all I ever here is to like, oh, that would be nice, but we can't. And yeah, you uh, know, so. any anything on top of that is just like you know cope or whatever but you know human nature or political reality or whatever it's it's always just like well i want to do that i really do but we can't
2: yeah yeah and, I, and with and so with growthism and with degrowth there's a, there's a very similar species of thing which is like the argument we saw which was like oh yes it's fine and all and good to care about the environment and ecology but what about resource conflict what about poverty what about scarcity what about this and how are and the famous when everybody says this and how are you going to convince the masses of that <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah those are always the ones i hear and it's just yeah. like what i i think a lot of people especially i think first of all I, I mean for substantial portions of the world which have never seen the benefits of quote-unquote growth materialize for them like i don't think they they don't they don't need to be convinced that economic growth is basically irrelevant to their lives but <laughs> yeah. um but uh it's a very. Because everybody in the like global north and these whatever, they always invoke poverty and in the global south to dismiss these ideas. But in doing so, they show like this very funny bias that they don't actually like talk to people from the southern from other <laughs> oh, places. Oh, they hate them. Yeah, they absolutely yeah. hate them. <laughs> so it's just that's that's always been the funny thing to me is that everybody loves to invoke poverty and and, and the people of the global south, and then it's just like, have you ever talked? What to What about to the stupid I mean, dirt people? Do
0: you ever yeah, think that's, of them? <laughs> that's,
2: that's what it feels like. The arguments are a lot of the time. I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting to me. I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's that's always the things I encounter. I mean, uh, I I see a I see whole groups of the world just tokenized very regularly just to like win as cudgels for just like dismissing.
0: Yeah, them. just like that. That tankies yeah. pick, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah yeah these that's are tankies the or whatever yeah it's,
0: it's the same thing everyone does that that's um, the most
2: extreme case yeah
0: well i think we should wrap it up here uh we're at two and a half hours now <laughs> uh okay. so i'm probably gonna split this into two parts actually but um well, samuel do like you have anything do you have anything that you want to plug
1: oh geez um well uh you sort of talked about your book a couple... Yeah, in a couple of weeks, I will hopefully have, have uh, a book to plug. But it's um, not nah, just go to my go to my website, SamuelJMM.com. I don't know. I don't have anything to plug. Uh, no.
0: OK, <laughs> well, I'll put the website in the show description so people can get to it easily. Uh,
1: cool. No, just here and maybe this just just care about about ecological collapse and biodiversity <laughs> yeah. loss that's all that just like i feel like all these people were are talking about on the left or the right or whatever they're just people who haven't taken this seriously who've like just don't don't accept e- the data on right. on on climate and, eco- and ecological collapse like it's they just the, all their debates all their arguments are just coming from a place of not taking that data seriously and that's that's all it is so that's that's what i want to plug just take it seriously that's all
2: i mean i i endorse that Ed for that i think i have some articles i would like to, maybe you should post in the link description in the show description but
0: yeah absolutely i know um, you always give me like five or six <laughs> articles to
2: link yeah i think i think this time it's just two or three but uh okay. <laughs> but uh <clears throat> but yeah I, and uh anyway but yeah okay
0: and did you have anything you wanted to plug was that was that your plug uh,
2: uh, except for uh my charge cord, no <laughs>
0: Read uh, read Young Neocon's threads. No, don't yes. do that. Don't <laughs> yeah, no, they're good. They're great. Spare yourselves. Spare yourselves.
1: <laughs> I've learned so much from them. They're really great. Uh, we'll
0: I have more that. bookmarks of Young Neocon threads than anything else on Twitter.
2: Wow, well, I appreciate that, guys. Uh, don't, 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 yeah. don't, don't compliment me too much. It'll blow up my ego too much. <laughs> you have to be All mean. Right.
0: Thank you to both of you for coming on. I um, hope we can do this yeah. again sometime hopefully with fewer technical issues.
2: Yeah. I'm going to try to get something else. Also, I really want to Sam. I really want to talk to you about like, uh, your, like academic work and stuff.
1: Yeah, man, let's talk and
2: research. And, yeah, uh, definitely. and I don't know that cause I, you're you t- mentioning the progress thing too. I mean, once you've done the plug, I mean, I think an episode on the progress thing could actually be really cool. Yeah. yeah that, that sounds good.
1: Fun. Yeah. Let's do it.
2: that, that ties together a lot of these themes. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever read, like John Gray? John Gray? Yeah. Uh, he's like a they, like he's like a conservative critic of progress, but he's really it's really interesting. I, I, I like I like him as a uh, person. I mean, this isn't for the episode, but I'm saying I like him because uh, he's what he's like one of the few like smart conservatives in the world. But anyway, <laughs>
0: yeah, I'll, I'll pick him out. Ah uh, yes, the recurring secondary character in Gabaldon's Outlander series of novels. <laughs> That's who you're talking about.
1: <laughs> oh, the uh, the aristocrat, yeah, yeah, totally. He's he's great. He's yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I don't know the series of novels, so.
0: Okay. Oh no, I misspelled it. It's uh, the senior pastor of Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina.
2: <laughs> John, John Gray, uh, he's written two critiques of Pinker that are incredibly like brutal.
0: Uh, Ooh, like that he, sounds interesting.
2: He has like yeah. one where he's like, and in a book that if Pinker had presented to an undergraduate philosophy seminar, would have earned him me a failing grade. Like the opening <laughs> line. <laughs>
0: Link that in the chat.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'll but put anyway, it, that's I'll put a, it in the show description. And so you live in Edinburgh now.
1: That's yeah. How's that? It's a beautiful city. Yeah, so many cobblestones. Uh, it's yeah, it's gorgeous. Um,
0: yeah, I was telling him well, I was trying to know, move there too.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's, it's it's a lot cheaper than a lot of big cities. It's walkable. Everything's really walkable. Um, it's weird since lockdown, obviously, because all the nice coffee shops are closed, or or you know, full of viruses, but um yeah it's it's a gorgeous city
2: um yeah me
1: and my
0: girlfriend were looking at uh like a real estate agency there and the the rents there are like less than here in fucking way out suburb of (laughs) dc
1: oh yeah
2: for a a while i was looking at you know back when i was applying to grad school a long time ago i was looking at the university of edinburgh because they have uh one of the world's most famous like uh science technology studies programs but yeah Hmm. Like it's actually a foundational one. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's but, cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. But I never ended up applying there. They do. They do have uh, rolling admissions, though. So it's weird. One of the only places I've ever seen that has that for a graduate program. But anyway. <laughs> uh, well,
1: yeah, you both come on over anytime.
2: <laughs> uh, well. It, it, see the problem with people uh, make that are get they uh, invite me to, to come visit places like I, I I tell you I need to warn you because I take people up on that offer so I don't <laughs> so yeah no so, do it that's I, that's fine. you might, I, may, I may, if I if I if if, if during a post pandemic I spy like a cheap plane ticket to Edinburgh I very well might go there so yeah so so uh, I would say uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: no let me know let yeah. me know when the when you
2: get in. Yeah, yes, yes, it'd be nice. Uh, anyway,
0: yeah. All right, y'all. I'm gonna finish building my firewood rack. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for coming on.